1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Uma Naidu, MD, a Harvard-trained nutritional psychiatrist, professional chef, nutrition specialist, and author of This Is Your Brain on Food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and much more. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, Harvard Health Press, and so much more. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, y'all. I'm so excited to be here. So um, Harvard is a great feat for so many people. What an incredible institution that carries such weight with it. Um, Were you initially interested in nutrition um, as it related to psychiatry, or were you just going down the psychiatry route from the beginning and then sort of came across this connection?
2: So I started uh, with just studying psychiatry, but food and nutrition has always been a big part of my life since childhood because I grew up in a very large South Asian family. Lots of cooks in the kitchen, uh, a combination of allopathic uh, medical doctors as well as Ayurvedic practitioners. So always the talk of medical science and and healing foods and nutrition and, and also the love and nurturance of a family. But what I realized was that I also grew up in a background that Sort of connected the mind and body, uh, in yoga and meditation and mindfulness were part of what we did and, and how I was raised. So when I came to study psychiatry and started to learn about the medications and the fact that they had potentially devastating side effects, on the one hand, they are life saving to many of my patients, but they also have side effects. I felt that there needed to be more tools for that individual person to have in their toolkit in order to overcome their mental uh, mental health issues. So while medications may be a component of it, I really began to explore more of a holistic model with th- speaking about nutrition, asking them questions about exercise, asking them if they did any kind of activities that say they could call movement and how did they sleep, for example. So I began asking that much earlier on in my career and it was only later on that the different components came together in, uh, in, in an amazing way. I wish I could say that I had a plan for that. I didn't. I, I really followed things that I loved to do.
1: So let tell us uh, what were some of the things down the road that started to make you skeptical of this connection? Things you either saw in your own life and felt and experienced personally with food or what you started to notice in people and in general, to connect some dots, to go, wait a minute, there's some red flags here.
2: Exactly. So the first, one of the first things that happened was just noticing that there were some serious side effects with uh, very popular medications in mental health. Uh, some of them included sexual side effects, a loss of libido, or weight gain, which was very difficult for people to cope with when they might already be depressed or very anxious. So finding ways to speak with individuals about their nutrition began to be part of the conversation. But I was also noticing that the classification system we use, the current classification in the U.S. is DSM-5. It simply doesn't cover every individual. It's, it's a lot of checkboxes and a lot of you know important details around conditions. But many people have symptoms that really cross over many, more than one condition, and they may be suffering to a different extent. So they may be functioning, but not feeling well. And this is when nutrition and nutritional strategies began to be very important. Some red flags were, for example, a patient very early on in my career began yelling at me, and at the time, I have to tell you, I was a lot more timid and, and new to being, uh, you know, being a student of psychiatry and studying all of the field. And he accused me of causing him weight gain in, in a very short period of two weeks after having uh, started a medication. And I knew it wasn't me. And I knew his baseline weight from his medical chart. But in that moment, was a, a very important change occurred for me because I noticed that he was carrying a very large cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which is very famous in Boston. And my attention switched to that, and I said to him, um, "Let's use Bill for for sake of another name." And I said, "Bill, tell me, tell me what you put in your coffee today." And he looked down and he said, "Well, I just put what I always put. I put, you know, a, a lot of a lot of creamer, and I put in my sugar." And I said, "Well." why don't we just sit down at the computer and work this out? And we calculated that he'd probably put more than a quarter cup of processed creamer and eight teaspoons of sugar in that cup. And when he understood wow. cal- calorically, you know, in a 20-ounce size, um, calorically what that meant, he then understood was a ha- habit that he thought was just some, one of the things he drank in a day uh, and moved on to, say, a second ha- half a half-sized cup of that later in the day Um, the, that it made a difference that those, those types of calories and the processed creamer, um, the, the packets of sugar that he didn't realize counted for so many calories mattered. And, you know, when I saw that his attitude changed and it was almost that a light bulb went off in his head it made a difference to me because I felt like I was reaching him. It was effective. And this was something that could be a healthy habit change over time because understanding it and providing that little gap of education for him was powerful in terms of his own nutrition. And then he understood that he could make some adjustments, he could cut back in this way, he could get a smaller size, you know, he could put less of a, or or switch to a healthier version of, of maybe a milk or cream or something, something else, maybe a nut milk. Um, But he understood it. And I think that that began, for me, was a very powerful moment, both in my career, but in my understanding of being able to connect with people. And I, it really took it from there. I allowed, I allowed myself uh, to really grow and learn more and explore more and do more research and began to ask more questions around what people were eating um, so, so that I could help them affect some change.
1: You know, it's interesting. I I spoke with someone who had years and years of depression on and off uh, as a child, uh, going up into her thirties, forties. Finally, she discovered she had a non-celiac sensitive c- t- sensitivity to gluten and dairy. And once she yes, took that yes. out of her life, she got off antidepressants for the first time in her life within one year. And it had been this story. Amazing. Yeah. The story about like, oh, this is just your brain. This is what's wrong with you. And then that one thing. What are some major offenders that you've seen for people that are struggling with some of these issues mentioned in the introduction here that uh, you could say, hey, you know what, if you've got this, you might want to eliminate these things. Now I know it's broader than that, but if you could just give us a snapshot.
2: Absolutely. So um, interesting, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is a very real thing. And in fact, People may not be um, as severely sensitive as someone celiac, but they have difficulties and it can, in fact, impact their mood and impact other symptoms like focus or anxiety. So some of the, the big red line offenders, uh, you know, I'm, I know you're not going to be surprised by this list in terms of physical health, but the gap has been missing in terms of the nutritional psychiatry element and our mental health. So added sugars and refined sugars actually worsen depression and worsen anxiety, and when people try to switch from a regular soda and they move to diet soda, that could still be a problem because artificial sweeteners worsen these symptoms as well. Um, you know, processed and ultra-processed foods, I know it's difficult to avoid them. But we have to be a little bit mindful of the ingredients because the artificial colorants, dyes, the stabilizers, the fillers, um, the preservatives, the added sodium, none of that is actually good for our mental health. So being mindful, cutting back a little bit, making some healthier swaps is probably good for all of us to try. And, you know, we know that fast foods are problematic and if our diet is mostly fast foods, we've got to realize that things like French fries uh, from fast food restaurants have added sugar because they've been engineered that way to be hyper palatable and we don't taste the sugar, but these are the, you know, the added sugars, the um, the unhealthy fats that are used and things like processed vegetable oils, which are less expensive, also drive inflammation in the body. And that is a setup, you know, information that starts off in the gut and then becomes neuroinflammation impacts mental health symptoms. So it's on a spectrum of, of all of these different foods as well as things like trans fats which actually have been shown to uh, be associated with behavioral aggression. So, you know, it's it's very overwhelming for someone to make change all of the all the, all of those changes in a single day or single week. I always suggest slow and steady habit change. Make, make changes that you think you can hold on to, make them slowly so that they stick and, you know, make them mindfully so that, you know, if you're trying to cut back on a certain food or buy less of a, say a processed ingredient and replace it with a fresh ingredient that, you know, you're, you're on a pathway to trying to improve your overall um, eating pattern, which, you know, any one of us can up our game um, uh, uh, without eating.
1: You know, it's interesting. A lot of people uh, use the Primal Health Coach Institute certification in their, you know, psychology practices for people that are dealing with anxiety. And so, you know, the connection between cortisol, blood glucose, anxiety, things like this, right, if you get on a train where you sort of have become... Um, uh, what do they call it? Gosh, I don't know why I gave the word. Um, yeah. where well, you know, where you have hypoglycemic and, okay. and things like that, right. The ups and downs, right. Mm-hmm. Or if you, my gosh, if you eat a meal and a, a, two hours later, you just need to pass out because you're so tired. These are the things we need to evaluate. What is, a, are, are you, are you suggesting an overall low carbish ish paradigm? Uh, what, what is, what, what do you follow for your, your mental and emotional health?
2: So, you know, I consider myself diet diet agnostic, and I do that all because people who come to my practice can be carnivore vegan, and they can be anywhere in between. And I still have to find a way to address their better mental health. I think that the evidence um, is really behind some combination of maybe a keto Mediterranean or really a Mediterranean eating pattern, as I call it, uh, which is, you know, embracing healthy fats, um, abundance of vegetables, uh, certain fruit, uh, you know, some some fish, uh, lean poultry, and then, you know, uh, cuts of beef and things like that. So, so I think that it really... Nutrition has become, and certainly nutritional psychiatry for my practice, has become much more personalized because our good microbiome is like a thumbprint. So a person, you know, I've had examples of two family members, biologically related, a mother and a daughter, who came in because I was evaluating the mom and during the conversation revealed that they both had opposite reactions to the same healthy food. So that's an example of the fact that our microbiome is really that unique. And therefore, when it comes to a specific diet, I take what the person comes in with and really try to work them towards uh, work help them work towards healthier eating from where they are starting so it could be that someone is maybe vegan or maybe in a vegetarian diet and what can they eat to really boost the nutrients minerals minerals vitamins and foods that could say improve symptoms of depression and i try to try to work uh, from that point with everyone
1: what about this other aspect of the, you know, the psychology behind mm-hmm. eating issues? You know, look, uh, I'm sure as you realize someone accidentally, uh, like a lot of people in this country with type two, they accidentally get there. They didn't know mm-hmm. better. Yes. You know, they followed the food pyramid or they got themselves into a new sugar addiction. Boy, candida showed up. Now they're rolling, they're craving the sugar and they get somewhere that, you know, <laughs> right into like yeah. an addictive state, which is tough. Yeah. I've been there before too. And um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about addressing that. And there's so many mindset components to body image, to the reasons behind why someone may may get healthier. There's unhealthy and healthy reasons. If you could chat a little bit about some of the Mm -hmm. things you've experienced, and maybe what I'd like to hear first are some of the things out of people's mouths that you go, ah, that's the psychology part that's tripping you up in in this
2: game. Absolutely, I think what you're pointing to is extremely important because, as a psychiatrist, you know the the psychological aspects, and and it's it's I'm one of those doctors who really believes therapy helps. It's not just about medication. So, irrespective of the fact that I practice as a nutritional psychiatrist, I've always believed in these holistic models of care. So, I couldn't agree with you more. It's often mindset. It's how they're thinking about food. It's their relationship with food, and so when someone comes into me and they're excluding foods for reasons that don't really make sense. Or, you know, have a touch of orthorexia where they, they're following a healthy diet, but they're following it to the point of, you know, counting every gram of food and every calorie and they're almost getting obsessed by it. I have to step in and really talk about their relationship and connection to food and explore with them what the underlying angst, anxiety, or difficulty is in that relationship with food. That has led them to say stress eating or emotional eating, you know, because when we are stressed, our brain becomes hypersensitive to the rewards of these tasty, high fat and highly sugared foods, which, which are, which are somewhat unhealthy for us. So exploring that with them becomes important, um, Working with them around what they feel are mindset changes they can make. Can some of them? It might even be having to heal their relationship with food. Um, it might be that they've started to crave sugar because you know they've given up certain nutrients and their body is then just just craving these these um, uh, these you know very simple carbohydrates. And we know that from studies, sugar is. Works through the dopamine reward system, so it 's similar to cocaine and when they get onto that path of candy bars or maybe it 's cookies for someone else, maybe for someone else it 's ice cream, it becomes this vicious cycle that needs to really be understood so that we can work to to try to help them make positive changes. So I think that um, you know outside of an eating disorder which can be much more complicated. Uh, may have family dynamics involved and may have other aspects involved that are underlying and sometimes requires more programmatic work, uh, residential treatment program or other things. Sometimes it's individuals who are struggling just with their relationship with food itself and how do they embrace a healthier path while eating foods that they enjoy. And some of it starts with not not at first excluding things, but really working to see what their body is telling them, which I call body intelligence, when they eat certain foods. You mentioned earlier, you know, two hours later they'd be feeling fatigued or nearly passed out. They needed to pay attention to those things. And from there decide maybe there are different foods they should be eating.
1: Yeah, but I'm sure, I don't know you've worked with tons of people, Um offhand, can you give us a sort of example of maybe one of the tougher nuts to crack that was able to, you know, rise above and make major changes in their life that led to incredible success in their psychiatric state, no matter what they were suffering from?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, I had um, a woman in her 50s who came to me years ago, and uh, she was really severely depressed to the point that she one of the first things she told me was that her family had just left on vacation without her, and and when I asked her why, she shared that you know she just was unable to get on a plane anymore. Um, they ran a family business, and um, she was you know she was she was functioning. She was getting to work. She was doing what she needed to do, but she just didn't have the energy. She didn't have the energy to get herself together. She, they were a very loving family. They were very close, but they just for years, not, they had not gone on a family vacation together. And that really struck me as very sad uh, because I, I knew that there was, this was not because there was um, dissension in the family, but because she was so, uh, so depressed. And it turned out that medications that she had been taking had not been effective. And the first thing that we had to do while we started a nutritional psychiatry plan at the same time was really adjust and lower some of the medications, but to a more effective medication that actually targeted her symptoms. Um, she had not been seeing a psychiatrist. She had been getting medication for some time from her primary care doctor who was really trying to help her out and you know trying to see what symptoms she was having, but it turned out she was quite depressed What was very, very positive about her journey was that we really used a holistic approach. She learned mindfulness. She learned meditation. She began to eat, to really eat more healthily. Um, She, um, over time, we, like I said, we adjusted the medications. And, you know, over several years, she is now effectively traveling. You know, she traveled overseas before COVID with her family um she needs less medication Uh, her weight has changed she now has learned to make some simple meals at home whereas before her husband would do a lot of the cooking and, um, you know, she would often feel at times that she couldn't just say to her kids, "Oh, well, why don't you ask your friends over because I can I can make something for all of you guys to eat at home. She was able to achieve that, which made her feel very rewarded that she wasn't just calling up the pizza delivery place or ordering in food that she knew or felt was unhealthy for her children and their friends. And, you know, I, th- I consider that to be very important uh, and or something that always stuck with me because... It was um, simple things that she was just not able to participate in her life. And it changed so dramatically with healthy habit changes, changes in her diet, adjustments to her medications. And I'm quite certain that if we continue to work in this this way, that she may ultimately not need medications. But it has taken time and a lot of work on her part as well.
1: I would love you to speak to something and I would... I'm just going to assume you might agree with me on this. You can challenge me on it if not. But, you know, uh, as a coach and going throughout my life, uh, a lot of times you hear when people need to do something about their health, their mindset, whatever it is, they try to enlist their family, other people, you know, and then they start to blame, right? Well, so we know, first of all, I don't care. Like, so, you know, they'll be like, well, hopefully I can get everyone on board, which, you know, already is sort of a failed statement. And Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. such an individual thing, right? That you have Mm -hmm. to find the reasons around you. And I, I just, if you agree with that, I'd like you to press that point and talk about that because you know, so Mm -hmm. many times you hear people already knowing they're going to fail because they're, they're either blaming or roping someone into it. And the truth is you have to do that for you, regardless of the support, you can go get outside support, but you may not get it in your family. Your husband may be keep bringing home the cakes. It's you that has to go on Mm -hmm. this journey.
2: Absolutely. You know, I, I, I've dealt with this with different family, families um, or clients, I should say, as well, because of engaging their families that way. And it can be very hard. Some of it is where I help, uh, where I think I'm, I'm pretty clear with them, um, is around really that this is, like you said, El, it's their journey. It, it's your journey to solve this. And your family might come along, they might not come along, but that does not prevent you from what I call self-care. Many people think that when they care for themselves and they say have to cook a separate meal for themselves because no one else in the family will eat that many vegetables or eat that, that, that salmon or whatever it is they're eating, then, you know, it, it, that is not self, selfish. It's actually self-care because you're making sure that you're following a plan that is going to help you. And I think that when they understand that and they're able to separate that out from what everyone else is doing, because they may not be able to influence teenage kids, so they may not be able to influence what their husband does, they may not be able to influence, you know, that there are cookies in a particular cookie cabinet, and they have to figure out a way that though they almost Um, understand that that is not part of the food that they eat or that while they're trying to embrace a healthier diet, that they really, you know, don't eat certain foods that are going to worsen their symptoms. Um, And I usually find that a clear discussion up front with them and and really, in a in a in a gentle but respectful way, challenging them around. You know, is it is it really a husband's fault? I mean, he's of normal weight, and if he eats a piece of cake, he exercises. He's on the peloton. He's you know he runs three times a week, and he's fine. I, I've had such cases, and and so that individual. I'm not justifying that he should eat cake, but I am saying he's he's metabolic health, which is something we care about now is actually probably relatively okay because he's keeping active and he's probably burning off, even if it's not a food that's the most healthiest, he's burning it off. So, you know, um, how, how does that compare to what you're doing when you're coming in with these parameters? And, you know, it's, it's really not about shaming people around any one of these things, whether it's, whether it's what they're eating or the fact that they may not, they may have have been eating fast foods, but it's about, Bringing them along the process and helping them understand what what will happen to help them.
1: Nice. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and you're talking about how when when we get into states of stress, it can sort of trigger this sort of reward thing that can you know preclude us to sort of edge towards choices we maybe wouldn't make in those situations. Can you explain? You know, uh, to the layperson here, uh, the mechanisms by which, like, how does that happen? So, you get stressed, your cortisol, like, can you give us the cascade of the things that go on, uh, that lead to that?
2: Absolutely. I think that one of the traps that happens with, uh, say, you know, getting used to, uh, eating simple carbohydrates, this is a great example. And the way I explain it to people is that, you know, there are several ways in which food can increase our serotonin levels. And uh, foods are high in simple carbohydrates, you know, things like breads, pastries, pretzels, those types of things, sugary donuts, they increase the insulin levels and they allow more tryptophan, which is the natural amino acid building block for serotonin to actually enter the brain. And so the, you know, the it then becomes converted to serotonin. So sometimes a person eats a food like that and they initially feel good and they wonder, you know, what is my doctor saying? It's it's, it's just crazy. You know, I I eat this food and I feel great. The problem is that the simple, you know, these simple carbohydrates also, A, are addictive. They do may make you feel happy for a while, but they also cause very high blood sugar levels that over time can and are associated with brain atrophy and maybe even dementia. So, you know, that's an example of you think that you're eating just a simple, you know, simple carbohydrate. I'm just going to have, say, the sugary donut or whatever it is, but and you may feel good. But ultimately, there is a problem with this um, based on the insulin that gets released and based on the amount of sugar that you're consuming. So, you know, am I demonizing sugar? All I'm saying is that we have to be careful in, in, in what we're eating these days because there's so many added and refined sugars in our environment. And you know, pieces of appropriate sort of like uh, low glycemic fruit, if you're having problems with your weight, berries are a great option. And one to two servings of fruit a day are actually good and healthy for you. But if you are struggling with your weight, you just have to be careful about which food you eat. So it's sort of really understanding what it is that, that we're eating, what the effects are on our body, but also what the long-term, sometimes unseen effects are as well. So, you
1: know, not to uh... Rag on it because I know there's a lot of people that enjoy their nightly wine and all of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I've noticed in my life uh, that it is an extreme depressant for me. Um, yes. yes, extreme depressant. And because uh, I so I rarely drink, but but when I do, uh, and it's again, it's so rare. And you know, maybe it's even a just half a glass or a glass. I'm not looking at the world the right way the next few yeah. days. Uma, do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, and I've I can't, heard oh, this. Yes, so things. so. Can you tell us what what's that about, so that people can maybe get inspired a little bit to either clean up their act with that, maybe be more moderate about their their drinking, or maybe yeah. see the connection between these two? Because Absolutely. I see it in people that are regular drinkers or go a little bit abo- above, you know, the normal. Yeah. So,
2: um, yeah. So, no, that's a great question, Al. Because for one thing, we know from data that's come out that um, the use of alcohol and drugs during the pandemic in the U.S. has increased markedly. So it's a a good question to ask, and it's one that we should feel informed about. You know, alcohol has many different effects, um, but one of the very key effects it has that people don't realize, because they may initially feel somewhat relaxed or maybe a slight buzz, as people call it, Ultimately, the way that alcohol acts chemically is as a depressant. So what you're describing, not only have I heard it before, people do feel that way when they drink alcohol. Some people don't, and they don't realize the long-term effect is that they might actually experience a dip in their mood. So with alcohol, you know, my guidelines around that are drink in moderation. If you're sensing that you, or someone is saying to you, someone who loves you, or even a friend... Um, who is just saying to you that you might be taking, you know, might be imbibing too much, having a little bit uh, too too much fun w- with alcohol. I think that that's where you really do need to seek help, a therapist, a counselor, a doctor, someone who can guide you around what, what you should be doing because ultimately it worsens depression and it drives anxiety. The third problem with it is separate to the actual effect of alcohol on other systems of the body, like the liver and everything else. Um, Alcohol itself, uh, it it has the depressant effect, but people often will add things to the, um, say, a cocktail. Um, And and all those mixes, the simple syrup, added liqueurs, different liquors added – not only are are calories, they are unfortunate sugar calories that get added on. So, you know, I suggest to people, if you're going to have a cocktail once in a while, have a clean cocktail. Um, You know, if you're going to have a glass of wine, have it in moderation. And, you know, offering guidance around that becomes important because it actually does impact mental health.
1: All right. So let me jump into this, Serena, since we're on the substance conversation. All right. So plant medicine has become very popular. And when I say plant medicine, I'm not talking about the basics like marijuana. I'm talking about people microdosing psychedelic mushrooms or right MDMA, things like that. Now, when I was in high school, I did a lot of acid and I ended up getting kicked out of high school <laughs> because, well, here's the thing. Uh, what was very interesting is I had become very depressed. I was sleeping all the time. Like I just was not wanting to live in reality. And when my parents took me to a psychiatrist and they had no idea I was doing this, uh, the psychiatrist had my parents leave the room and, and when they left, he, I cannot believe to this day, I am amazed that this guy just called it because see, when I went in there, I was (laughs) dressed all perfectly. You know, I was presenting myself just, you know, like the best that I could. And he, when they closed the door, he looked at me and he goes, do you do acid? And I was like, I, I couldn't even lie. I was so caught oh, off guard. I-, well. I said, oh my God, how how did you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, because I can tell. And he went on to describe, here's what happens to your brain, blah, 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 and messes mm-hmm. with chemicals. And I don't remember what he had said, but mm-hmm. this is what I have noticed. I've noticed out there in the ether that And I'm not against plant medicine, and I do understand its incredible relation for PTSD and trauma and all this sorts of stuff. But Mm -hmm. I do, and I've seen some people who do it a little bit too much, and they're not living in reality, and it definitely alters the personality. So I'd like you to talk about some of the downsides here and why that happens if you do
2: too much of that. Absolutely. So as with everything, including nutrition and the work I do in nutritional psychiatry, everything in moderation There's certainly emerging science, a lot of treatment centers and other programming in the United States around what you're describing. And it really has to be under the care of a trained physician who knows how to work with you to help you say, for PTSD or help you with the symptoms that you're trying to work on regarding mental well-being. It really, I I sort of liken it to the fact that cannabis um, has been legalized in many states. I, unfortunately, as a psychiatrist, see the downside of that because I see individuals who are not getting a prescription, who are not getting it legitimately through um, or after being assessed, say it's for pain or for sleep or for anxiety, but they are getting it, you know, uh, I guess from a friend or, or purchasing it somehow. In other words, it's not prescribed. And you never, ever know what's in that substance. People end up in an emergency room with psychotic symptoms, loss of touch with reality. You never know what it is that has been mixed in with, with what was would otherwise be considered a legal um, dose of marijuana. So I think with everything in moderation, make sure you're seeing the appropriate clinician who can help you. And if you are overindulging, or if you are making this a recreational habit, then it's really no different from a drug. And I'm, I'm sorry if you, if if anyone hearing this feels offended, but when it is not. Used in an appropriate way, it is nothing more than just a psychedelic substance. Um, you know, these these programs are really being rolled out around what we're understanding from the research, how it can be helpful to people, and and I think that you know um, it needs to be respected within within those guidelines so that people don't get hurt.
1: Can you tell us what these things do? Like the MDMA, what is it doing? It's increasing dopamine. What is it doing that makes me feel? Oh, I love everybody, right? Or this experience that I'm having in a quote journey, and then I get out of it and I'm not right. So that if I You're do right. that it's... too much, what am I sparking? What am I? What is the negative
2: loop I'm beginning? Just like with alcohol, can you go down that road? Sure. So you know the the best way to describe it um, is that it, it there's a level of disinhibition. And a changing of our levels of consciousness that happen, and people describe going into you know a dark place. Other people, you know, for want of a better word, a word called a tripping. And you know when they come out the other side, they they some of them feel healed, they feel uplifted, but others may may not feel that way. And that's why I think it needs to be really carefully mod- modulated by someone who knows how to manage what you're doing and um, uh, also regulated around where you are, that you're in a safe place you with, with, with people around you. Um, you know, if you're alone, you could get hurt. Um, things like that become become really, really important. But, you know, I wouldn't say that I do treat substance abuse issues well. It's not my area of expertise. Um, I do think that that as a psychiatrist, I'd offer guidelines to people around being really careful uh, when they when they use these as uh, as choices.
1: What are some other things? Uh, you know, through all the interviews you've done, through all the people you've worked with, what's something we wouldn't think about? That is something you've either seen that was helped through food that had to do with psychiatry, you know, one of these areas or something that really surprised you that you didn't know that when, when you found out, you know, you were like, oh, wow, what an incredible connection.
2: Absolutely. I think that um, some stories that, that stick out for me with the colleague of mine who was an orthopedic surgeon who was willing to let his patient who had heard about me come and see me for consultation to actually reduce inflammation in her knee joints by using turmeric with a pinch of black pepper. And she had read about it. She'd read one of my articles and she really wanted to see if this could help and she could delay uh, the onset of the symptoms that she was having, if they could improve and maybe she could delay or not have surgery. And I, I, I really recall that as a very central moment because it felt that I felt that That was, you know, doctor was willing to give his patient a chance to really try something slightly different um, and and slightly out of the box. So I was, I was, I was, that always is something that I remember. The other thing that I also remember is just that an individual who um, arrived in my office uh, severely panicked and, 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 and quite, quite anxious asking, saying that she had to leave my office with a prescription for Zoloft because that she knew she was having such severe panic and anxiety. But really just by speaking to her and understanding what had happened, it was my first such case. And that's why I remember remember it so clearly that she'd been referred to me by a gastroenterologist. And on first pass of discussing things with her, it sounded like she had significant gut issues. Um, It sounded similar to IBS and a lot of discomfort. But when I really asked her a longer history and uncovered her dietary pattern changes over the 18 months prior, it turned out she had gotten a promotion at work and her entire eating pattern from eating at home, from mostly preparing home-cooked meals, exercising regularly, going to the gym, maybe having one glass of wine a week um, had changed entirely because of this promotion. She was traveling, eating in airports, arriving late in hotel rooms, eating out of the bar fridge, having it probably one to two glasses of wine a night because almost every night was a business meeting, um, a, uh, an event that she had to socialize with, and everyone was having wine. So she she had to be part of the group. And everything had changed enough to disrupt her gut. And it turned out that when we really worked with her, together with her gastroenterologist, uh, myself uh, and her, over time, We were able to, A, avoid a medication for the panic, and she was willing to tolerate that and work with mindfulness and other mechanisms to, um, you know, feel calmer while she was using all these other uh, techniques. Um, Secondly, she actually didn't end up having IBS or any of those conditions because what she needed was really to heal her gut. She developed severe inflammation and a leaky gut. And, you know, it it, it really taught me so much because had we not – uh, employed all of those those things to help help something that I now know much better and can identify it much faster in an individual. Um, she she felt a lot better. She avoided the medication and she didn't have IBS. So it it was a it was really a a, a very early and good lesson for me.
1: Let me ask you this as we sort of start to wind down here: a couple of questions personal one, uh, at any given time in your life, whether it's before or after you became an expert in this field, have you experienced depression or a bout of depression before?
2: No, I've um, not experienced depression before, but I do, um, I did experience a real uh, bout of anxiety when I began treatment for for cancer. And um, I spoke about that in my book in terms of really understanding, firstly, experiencing those symptoms for the first time. And I don't, that because of the, the criteria and all of that, and understanding, I, I know that it wasn't full-blown anxiety, but what it was, was real, almost feelings of panic facing my first day of uh, chemotherapy treatment, because sadly, I knew the side effects of the medications I was about to take, and I had made a decision that I needed to uh, take them. And I really had to take a step back and realize that You know, I was no different from all of the individuals that I counsel every day and speak to them about nutritional psychiatry and that I could up my game in terms of what I was doing, what I was eating in order to help myself. Um, And that was a very important moment for me because it's a very – for for a doctor to be in the the role of a patient can be very difficult. And I not only had to embrace that role, but I also had to realize – that practicing all the things I was sharing with my patients became much more important to me. But first of all, I had to identify that I was feeling so anxious. Some of it was that I was still in shock when I first started treatment, and and that was that was important. And and I really did um, use a lot of what I speak about to help myself through that time.
1: Going through the experience of cancer, a lot of people. Uh, I've you know I've gone through a couple of health issues that have been the best things that ever happened to me Mm -hmm. and a lot of times you know people who haven't been through something like that they don't understand they're like you know when someone says oh breast cancer is the best thing or just and they are like i don't understand that i understand that what there must have been something there for you too right you know these these experiences of overcoming and going through something that could end you or something debilitating regardless Mm -hmm. of its of its end result um Tell me about a little bit of your, you know, mindfulness journey or what you discovered and what the, what, what were the prizes for you? you? You know what I'm saying? And it's a strange question, but hope that yeah. makes
2: No, no, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, because I think that um, it, it is true. You know, people don't understand that there can be an upside to a, a very bad diagnosis. And um, the upsides really are about firstly, how you approach it. Um, and my approach was that ultimately I tapped into or leaned into being resilient and leaned into what I knew about life and what I knew about my work to really see how it could um, help me and and I was open to it. I had an openness to it. I embraced the Um, the things that I could do. I let go of the things that I couldn't control. I couldn't control things like the effect of chemotherapy medications. You know, when your hair falls out or your nails get loose or all the horrible things that happen to people, you can't control those, but you can control how you manage them, what you do, what you eat, your mindset, meditation, mindfulness, you know, um, really things like writing down um, your gratitudes, just Paying attention to the moments of, for me, it was moments of prayer. Um, It was journaling around, um, you know, when I sat in chemotherapy, I didn't waste my time. I journaled or I wrote things that were helping me. Um, And I kept my mind busy so that I did not allow myself to, you know, sort of sit around feeling sorry for myself. Um, you know, other people felt a certain way, but I made sure that my mindset was, was strong and I felt that that, um, helped me and it didn't stop me. Some of my, some of the greatest things happened while I was in treatment. Um, and you know, I, um, I look back at that and feel that it helped me grow in my life. And uh, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but I would just say to anyone going through a difficult time, a difficult diagnosis, or a hard time that there's more than one way to view that, and you can also tap into some resilience around it and find um find your find your strong point within that experience from which you can grow
1: ah what a what a beautiful place to close I think Tell us well first of all, you're your book. Your book is This Is Your Brain on Food. I'm sure they can get it on Amazon.com and everywhere else. But tell us, how can we reach out? Either we need your help, we want to learn more from you and about your work. Tell us. And of course, we'll put all of the links to connect with uh, Dr. Naidu in uh, the show notes, but give us a little verbalization of where we can find you.
2: Great. Please um, follow me on on social, which is at D-R-U-M-A N-A-I-D-O-O, which is at Dr. Uma Naidu, where we actually put current research, updates from the book, all sorts of things that I think people who are interested in this topic may enjoy. And you can subscribe to uh, my website at umanaidumd.com. You can reach out to me on social, um, and you can find the book both on the website as well as at major book sales.
1: Great. Thank you so much for, for your work your time uh, here today. And is there anything you'd like to leave with our audience?
2: Um, I guess um, what I said last about, you know, when you're facing a difficult time, look at it in more ways than one. Take, yeah. take a deep breath and, and think about what you can benefit from that difficult situation that you're facing. Lovely. Thank you
1: so much. And to everyone else, we will see you next week.
0: Make sure every salad is dressed for success with Primal Kitchen dressings and marinades. Versatile, flavorful, and unique, use Primal Kitchen dressings to marinate meats, dunk veggies, and add complexity to your favorite salads. With keto-certified, certified certified paleo, and Whole30-approved options, finding your salad soulmate is a snap. Choose from updated classics like Ranch, Caesar, Italian, Balsamic, Honey Mustard, or Greek. Or get adventurous with aromatic sesame ginger, zesty cilantro lime, creamy vegan ranch, or tangy lemon turmeric. Avocado oil-based, these dressings, vinaigrettes, and marinades are an easy, Primal-approved way to upgrade any dish. So use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT to take 20% off your purchase at checkout.